Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. Tom and Ella are away this week, so with me instead we have Spiked editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spike columnist Tim Black. Hi. Coming up on the show, the Tory leadership, Trump's Iran standoff, and the man sacked from Asda for sharing a Billy Connolly video. I make buses. You make models of buses? I make models of buses. Have you ruined your chances of becoming Prime Minister, Mr Johnson? It's absolutely vital that we prepare for a no-deal outcome. I don't think that's where we're going to end up. I think it's a million to one against. Just who are we actually going to get as Prime Minister? Yeah. If he's going to dis- disappoint people very quickly, then this won't be a Prime Ministership that will last. Boris Johnson has long been the favourite to succeed Theresa May as Conservative leader and Prime Minister. Last week, he secured a comfortable lead in the final ballot of Tory MPs and will face his nearest rival, Jeremy Hunt, when the vote goes to the Conservative members. But within a day of Boris's victory, police were called to his house over a row with his girlfriend. The incident was splashed over every front page and some polls have shown a sharp drop in his support. For some, it has raised questions about his character. A few days later, the news was consumed by revelations that Boris likes to create model buses out of wooden wine crates. Meanwhile, more substantive questions over the candidates' Brexit strategies and other policy issues have fallen by the wayside. Brendan, what have you made of this uh, Tory leadership contest so far? I think it's a completely and utterly depressing spectacle and sums up the complete state of the Tory party and how um, broken it is and divided and shallow and completely empty, completely bereft of any big ideas or any sense of purpose or mission whatsoever. That's really what you can see in this spat between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt, which is just so uninspiring. Neither of them are saying anything particularly interesting. Neither of them are saying anything particularly coherent. That's the most Mm. shocking thing. The thing that I find really frustrated at the moment is... Um, what, what Toby Young in The Spectator referred to as Boris derangement syndrome. Mm. There is this Boris phobia, this hysteria about Boris in the media in particular, among kind of the media class, which I think is all out of proportion to the threat he allegedly poses to public life. But more importantly, it's completely distracting from the discussion we should be having, mm. which is that Boris, for all the claims that he is this colourful, freewheeling politician, he actually is quite amazingly um, lacking in substantial ideas and lacking in any coherent commitment to Brexit. Yeah. So that's the thing that's become so clear. I mean, some of us were always sceptical of the idea that Boris would be the saviour of Brexit and by extension the saviour of British democracy. But it's become so clear over the past two weeks that there is no substance to that claim whatsoever. And that's what we should be talking about, not the fact that he had an argument with his girlfriend or that he makes buses from crates. Mm. And he seems to be almost flip-flopping on this issue all the time because, you know, he keeps saying that October 31st is the date that we're absolutely definitely going to leave. But, you know, on the one hand, he's telling um, Brexiteer uh, MPs in private that he, he's absolutely going to go for no deal. He's going to rip up the withdrawal agreement. God knows what he's telling um, the Remain side, who many of whom are supporting him. You know, he has 51% of Tory MPs supporting him. That includes a lot of, um, you know, Remainers and soft Brexiteers. 
He can't decide whether there will be an implementation period in order to deliver Brexit. Well, we know that an implementation period is only only comes with signing a deal. Um, so it's all very confused. And I, th- I think that people, as you said, you know, it, to see Boris as the saviour of Brexit is, you know, at best naive, mm. at, at worst dangerous. Tim, I don't know what your thoughts are. Um, well, you mentioned Boris flip-flopping on Brexit, you know, uh, one point seemingly sort of vehemently opposed to Theresa May's withdrawal agreement, then backing it at another moment mm. and then saying he wouldn't back it again. Uh, but in fact, he's done that throughout his entire political career. He's just reversed every seeming decision he's ever made. He would frequently write a column one week um, attacking certain aspects of environmentalism. Uh, and then the next week he'd be sort of uh, going all green. Um, and of course, he he did that when he was actually the mayor of London with the uh, rather ill-fated Garden, Garden Bridge project. Um, and that testifies to something really important about Boris Johnson and that Brendan's alluded to this. He's entirely vacuous. There is not a single principle there. There is not nothing, uh, to which Boris Johnson has ever committed himself. And it lends, it lends him a profound lack of seriousness. None of his decisions, none of his thoughts, none of his, none of his statements have any consequence. Uh, so he's profoundly shallow and profoundly unserious. I think that's one of my main objections to him. And um, of course, the person he's facing is is equally um, profoundly, mm. profoundly shallow and um, and ideas free. Um, there's a brilliant article in um, in a in a music magazine called The Quietus, talking about you know someone who worked with Jeremy Hunt before he became a politician, and it basically says that Jeremy Hunt never talked about politics, and they were completely flabbergasted when he was suddenly out of nowhere selected to become a Tory MP, and um, someone actually asked him. What it, what do you think it is that um, you know makes you a conservative? Why do you why do you hold these politics? And his answer to them was, well, my parents voted conservative, so I suppose I am too. And and this is the man who wants to you know lead the country to be basically the the lead political figure in in the country, lead us through this period of profound political and democratic crisis. I mean, it's just crazy. No, it's completely crazy. And he is, uh, you know, Tim's. Act- absolutely right about Boris being, you know, stunningly vacuous. Um, and the same is true of Hunt, uh, even more so. But it's kind of, it seems less surprising because the story about Boris, certainly from the pro-Boris camp, is that he is the politician with, you know, he knows his history, he knows long words, he's <laughs> he's had these colourful positions that he's taken in the past, although as Tim points out, he's kind of ditched every one of them over time. So it's, it's really disturbing, in fact, when you think about it. I mean, you know, I don't particularly care what either of them say about environmentalism or, you know, the, the deficit or anything like that, because they just say the same as every other politician in the country on those issues. But what I do care about is what they say on Brexit. And both of them promise one thing on Brexit to one group of people and something completely different to another group of people. So Boris, as you point out, Fraser, he said, his Telegraph column was this kind of hugely bombastic piece saying, we're out, we're out on the 31st. I don't care what happens, do or die, we yeah. are leaving. Um, and then like a couple of days later, he said, there's only a one in a million chance we'll have no deal mm. because I think there's a spirit of compromise. And you just think one of these two faces is lying. One of them is lying. It, it's either the one saying, we're out, I don't care what happens, or it's the one saying, well, maybe we'll stitch up a deal and it, it will take a bit longer than the 31st of October. So that's really worrying. And Jeremy Hunt does the same. Jeremy Hunt also, um, you know, he's obviously a Remainer who has apparently converted to the Brexit cause, but he'll say one thing to Brexiteers and another thing to Remainers. And he said this week, 
that he wants a Brexit that works for the 48% as mm. well as the 52%. And that is a really shocking thing for a politician to say because there is no Brexit that works for the 48%. Um, a poll recently showed that um, around 80% of people who voted Remain want the solution to Brexit to be that we stay in the EU. Yeah, You cannot please those people without undermining democracy itself. So when he said that, it was really shocking. Uh, ben Bradley, the Tory MP, um, called him Theresa in trousers. You know, mm. basically just another, which is a bit weird because Theresa May often wore trousers herself. But anyway, <laughs> it was, you know, him as the continuation of that complete fudge that she represented on the Brexit question. So um, we are heading for... Um, the continued selling out of Brexit. That's so clear to me now. And I think that's something that all Brexit voters and democracy supporters have to start getting really serious about. The fact that obviously Hunt isn't going to give us a proper Brexit, but neither is Boris. Mm. Tim? Yeah, I think that's that's the, been the main problem with this um, rather distracting spectacle of, a, of the Tory leadership contest in that it's just a substitute for the uh, real debate that we actually want to be finally had out about leaving the EU. Um, instead, all we've got is this kind of, um, I say spectacle, but, you know, a spectacle does need some people to actually spectate and very <laughs> few people actually can be bothered to uh, to watch it. Um, and it's not surprising, but it's just two, two sort of plastic bags just sort of flapping in the wind at the moment. <laughs> There's no, nothing, nothing there to watch, nothing going on. Uh, and in some ways that, that, that video of the interview which Boris did uh, where he's talking about painting uh, painting uh, empty wine bottle uh, crates and turning them into buses that was actually quite revealing because you then just got a glimpse of the sheer emptiness of the man as you yeah. you, know, you know as you stared into those kind of those orbs that he, you know, that he has as eyes and you just saw him struggling to find anything in his life which meant something so there was something actually quite moving i think in that moment because it exposed the the emptiness at the tragedy. heart of the tor- the tragedy <laughs> at the heart of the tory leadership contest there there it was, sat on a sofa, just reiterating what the interviewer said. Because it was the interviewer who says, do or die. And Boris says, yes, quite right, do or die. He didn't even have that himself. Yeah. <laughs> and um, then, the th- but it, and even more shocking than that, actually quite disturbing video. <laughs> I mean, it really, you watch it thinking, mm. is, is he unwell? I mean, I really did watch that thinking. I don't know what's going on at the moment. But then even more bizarre is that it's then leapt upon by all these kind of anti-Brexit conspiracy theorists oh, yeah. who've now developed this theory, including Carol Cudwallader, the kind of the David Icke of the um, commentariat, <laughs> um, who's convinced that Russia and, and Bannon and Zuckerberg and all these other people kind of brainwashed us into voting for leave. She and others think that Boris purposefully weaved that story about making buses in order to when people went on Google to search for Boris and bus, instead of getting the £350 million leave bus, they'd get this video of him talking about painting wine crates. So you you end up thinking, I don't know who's more insane, Boris Mm. for giving this mad video in which he burbles on about painting buses or these conspiracy theorists who think he plotted it <laughs> with a, a help from his advisors in order to shove a certain political idea down the Google rankings. And you watch that whole debate play out and you start to think, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe politics has come to this at a time when British politics had the potential to be more exciting than ever through leaving the European Union and re-engaging ordinary people in public debate. It's become this bizarre clash between a posh idiot who doesn't actually support Brexit and anti-Brexit commentariat who just 
obsess over him and treat him as if, as if he's evil personified. And so something's got to cut through that. And someone's got to cut through it and say, guys, let's get back to the issue at hand, which is Brexit and the future of democracy. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you get this podcast on iTunes, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find the show. Last Thursday, Donald Trump approved military strikes against Iran. The operation was underway, planes were in the air and ships were in position. But then Trump abruptly called it off. These planned strikes were supposed to be in retaliation to the Iranian regime shooting down of a US drone. Contrary to America's initial assertions, the drone had in fact illegally entered Iranian territory. A few days prior, the US sent a thousand more troops into the Middle East, apparently in response to Pentagon images, which were alleged to show Iran's revolutionary guards attacking two international vessels in the Gulf of Amman. Tim, clearly tensions between the US and Iran have been rising for quite some time. I mean, how did we come so close to the brink of war? Well, it, it does look as if sections of the um, American policy-making establishment, uh, particularly as it's gathered itself around Donald Trump, do seem intent on, as they put it, uh, regime change in Iran. And they seem to be looking for any pretext for getting stuck into Iran. And we've just, we've seen that unfolding, or certainly escalating over the past few months. Um, we've had the uh, attacks on the oil tankers, uh, for which there's no, as, as far as we can see, see, no, you know, absolutely credible evidence that it was Iran that did it. Actually, the US have also been trying to, trying to find other examples of sort of uh, Iranian wrongdoing. Uh, they mention um, attacks on Saudi oil pipelines, which were in fact carried out by uh, Houthi rebels. Uh, there was even an ad, uh, a, attack in pa- in Pakistan, which was carried out by the ta- carried out by the Taliban, and that again the US tried to blame on. Iran. So we've just seen it over and over again. And, and the drone, the drone issue uh, is, is another example of this desperate search for a justification for getting stuck into Iran. They, you know, the US did claim that this drone uh, had not flown into I- Iranian territory. Um, and Iran said, actually, no, it really did. And they were prepared to put their evidence before the UN Security Council. That's how convinced Iran was that uh, there was no wrongdoing on their part. Iran then revealed that there had been an un, there had been a manned spy plane following the drone. And the US, I think, have refused to confirm or deny that story. But that just shows that there was far more to the drone story uh, than simply Iran, uh, you know, j- just, t- you know, taking it upon itself to, to try to antagonise uh, the US. Mm. Um, and it just all all seems to be pointing towards this determination on the part of this, you, you'd want to say neoconservative, but Anwar just brings back the rather sort of conspiratorial approach that too many of the left had towards the Iraq war. But there was definitely a section of that policymaking establishment in and around Trump who were so absolutely determined to get stuck into a round that they will invent whatever evidence they need to do so. Mm. Brendan? Yeah, the whole thing is really shocking. As Tim said in his column on this, if you thought the Iraq war was bad, wait until you see a potential Iran war. I mean, the fact that it's getting this close to actually potentially blowing up into something is in itself quite terrifying, even if the prospect of America invading Iran seems very, very slim. Uh, the fact that it's kind of getting close to this, the fact that the ante has been upped in this way mm. is in itself very worrying in terms of the stability of the region more broadly. So the whole thing is quite um, terrifying. I think um, Iran made a statement 
this week, the Iranian rulers made a statement uh, warning America not to violate um, Iran's borders and not to violate Iran's sovereignty. And you think, okay, that's quite a good point. America shouldn't do that. It's a bit rich coming from Iran, which is involved <laughs> in so many other regions, um, Yemen, um, Lebanon, uh, Iraq, uh, you know, really is kind of in a very underhand way. It, it pushes these kind of proxy armies and proxy political parties too across the region to kind of do its bidding. So that's a bit rich. But that is something that I think Spike agrees with, with it, which is that America should not violate Iran's borders in any mm. way whatsoever. I think there's a, there's a larger history here, of course, as well, which is that, you know, firstly, there was Vietnam, which exposed the limitations of American power in the post-war period. And then Iran is really second to that. If you think about, you know, of course, America and Britain and others helped to overthrow the Iranian government in 1953 and then reimposed the Shah, but then the Shah gets overthrown by the Iranian revolution of 1979, which we, as, as we pointed out on Spike a few years ago, was one of the biggest shocks to American foreign policy of the entire post-war period. And since mm. they've never really recovered from that blow, which is why they have uh, no diplomatic relations with Iran and which is why they obsess over it so much. And of course, America already has waged war in Iran, really, through the Iraq-Iran war of, 19, of the 1980s, when they supported Iraq to the hilt with weapons and training and all sorts of other means in order to try and weaken Iran. And then, of course, at other stages in the war, they supported Iran because they also didn't want Iraq <laughs> getting too big for its boots. So all that stuff has already happened. And I think we're seeing the kind of uh, coming to a head of all that stuff Thankfully, it's happening at a time when America is quite confused and um, discombobulated and unsure of its place in the world. So the uh, potential of it to take firm action against Iran seems pretty small. But the whole thing is already having a destabilizing impact on the region and they really need to kind of stop. And in terms of, you know, full-blown war, Tim, I mean, we say all the time we've said you know in relation to libya in relation to syria or whatever that we keep failing to learn the lessons of iraq or keep failing to learn that you know intervention in foreign countries and pushing regime change pretty much always ends in in disaster but iran is on a different scale to iraq isn't it oh absolutely yes on a com completely different scale uh, geographically it's 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 far larger uh, militarily, it's infinitesimally stronger uh, than Iraq. Uh, the Revolutionary Guards in Iran, uh, which is Iran's main sort of military uh, fighting force, uh, they're incredibly committed in a way that the Iraqi army wasn't mm. uh, in the early 2000s. It did, you know, you, it would have just taken a slight breeze to blow through Iraq's military defences in the in the early uh, 2000s. So it's 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 almost unimaginable that the US could be conceiving of an invasion of Iran. And in actual fact, Trump has already said, you know, there'll be no troops on the ground. Uh, but that almost seems to imply that he's therefore just willing to, what, to authorise a mass aerial bombardment of Iran, you know, and he talks about obliterating it, presumably from above. Mm. So Iran have rightly said, you're actually even contemplating dropping a nuclear warhead on Iran. So y you can see even when Trump's trying to sort of uh, almost pull back from repeating the mistakes of Iraq, uh, largely because Trump himself has always made a point of saying he was very much opposed to the invasion of Iraq. And so at the same time as he's doing that, he's accidentally, almost unwittingly, ramping up the conflict by talking of uh, of, of some non-troop intervention yeah. in, in Iran. And it, it, it actually almost therefore gives the Iranian regime the moral authority in this conflict. In terms of the proxy conflicts, 
Iran is all over that region. Mm. But you know, even if you got rid of Iran, which is because unfortunately the US does try to justify its assault on Iran at the moment in terms of Iran being the, you know, this malign influencer yeah. of all that goes wrong yeah. in the Middle East. You know, it's behind uh, Hezbollah, it's behind uh, various militias in Iraq, it's behind Assad, it's behind the Houthis fighting Saudi Arabia and Ye- Yemen. But all those different groups actually have their own motivations and interests. Mm. So even if Iran stopped backing them, those conflicts would continue. And also, it's always just worth pointing out, the uh, US has far more powerful proxy militias, proxy states, client states in the region, you know, states which are far more powerful than anything that Iran itself can muster. Obviously, it has Israel, but I think most importantly, it has Saudi Arabia and, yeah. and the Gulf states, which are in fraud to Saudi Arabia. And we've seen that, unfortunately, in, in, in Yemen, where you've got the worst, most catastrophic conflict being played out with the full authorization, effectively, and the arms of the UK and the US, while the US is uh, slamming Iran for supposedly destabilizing the region. So mm. it's, it's just a mass of contradictions and, and hypocrisy, which too many in the US establishment can't see because they're so, as Brendan says, they're so caught up in this idea that it's Iran, which is the massive problem because they have this almost, almost like psychological problem with Iran because it's, it's, as Brendan says, it's this thorn in the side. It's, it's, it's a reminder of uh, the impotence effectively of the US right now. And obviously in um, the domestic situation in Iran, we've um, written about multiple times on Spiked and we even, you know, named um, the girls of Revolution Street who have been protesting the you know anti-hijab laws as as one of spiked hero spikes heroes of, of last year i mean we would like to see some kind of regime change brought about by the people mm. of iran but what effect does you know these kinds of interventions have on that does that actually not make positive change less likely yeah absolutely and um this actually taps into a point tim just made which i completely agree with which is the you know the exaggeration of the role of iranian proxies as the kind of destabilizers of the entire region when in fact if you look at for example syria um you know russian and iranian involvement there is largely a response to the destabilization wrought by western intervention and western support for the uh breaking up of that state effectively um so russia and iran come in to try and kind of store up the assad regime same in iraq you know uh, iran wouldn't be all over iraq if it wasn't for the fact that it had been completely shattered by western intervention so very often um you know the argument that iranian influence is incredibly dangerous and therefore we have to stop it is is gets things entirely the wrong way around and that can be seen in Iran itself. You know, the idea that this is a almighty, extremely powerful, coherent regime just doesn't stack up. Mm. You know, this is a regime with a huge number of problems, a huge number of problems abroad in the various areas it's involved in, and a huge number of problems at home where there have been um, protests over recent years um, f- to begin with, largely by kind of middle class urbanites, sophisticates, people who want a more liberal country to live in, which is great. We support their desire for that. And then more recently, even by working class parts of the country who traditionally were, you know, fairly pro um, Ayatollah. So um, there are shifts taking place in the country. The problem is we don't hear as much about that as we probably should because everyone's obsessing over the kind of binary narrative of the West versus Iran. And also any threatened intervention threatens to undermine those kinds of 
uprisings. And, you know, we saw that in Syria. You know, mm. Syria was part of the Arab Spring. It was always going to be a more difficult part of the Arab Spring because of the nature of the Assad regime. But it did start as people rising up in vast numbers for radical change. And then intervention takes place. Um, you know, various people are handpicked by Hillary Clinton and others in the West to represent a, a pro-Western anti-Assad army. Mm. And it goes utterly downhill into a vortex of barbarism from there. Um, and the people are utterly sidelined and in fact just become spectators to the destruction of their own country. The potential for that to happen in, in Iran is also there, where not only does Western intervention threaten to destabilize a regime and a country, but it also takes the initiative away from the citizens of that country who are fundamentally the only people with the solidarity of people around the world who can overthrow a backward government. You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spikes has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spikes, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. And if you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spike a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spikes-online.com. Brian Leach, a 54-year-old disabled till worker, has been sacked from his job in Asda because he shared a video featuring comedian Billy Connolly from his Facebook account. In the set, Connolly jokes about religion, taking aim at Christianity and Islam. Not only was Leach sacked, he was also forced to make an apology, referencing the sensitive nature of the holy place of Islam. Brendan, what do you make of this apparent punishment for blasphemy? It's really, it's shocking, but at the same time, not surprising, mm. which is a really depressing state of affairs. So yeah, as you say, this is a disabled grandfather who worked as a meter and greeter at, at, at Asda in Dewsbury. Um, and he posted on Facebook this quite funny Billy Connolly stand-up routine where he says, religion is over, lads, it's fucking over. Take your Reformation, your Vatican, your fucking Mecca and fuck off. That's his line. Billy Connolly has always been famously anti-religion. Mm. He also attacks suicide bombers, calls them fucking idiots and all this kind of stuff. And um, this guy, Brian Leach, this 54-year-old Asda worker, um, has been sacked for sharing that on Facebook. And it's even worse. He was also forced to apologise, effectively, kind of a public retraction to his colleagues and um, his bosses at Asda. Um, and the thing they focused on was not the fact that this skit was attacking the Vatican or um, the Reformation or anything else, but of course that it attacked Islam, which mm. you're just not allowed to do. In Bizarrely, in 2019, in the United Kingdom, a supposedly free country, it's increasingly difficult to criticise Islam. You'll be accused of Islamophobia, you'll mm. be shut down, you'll be shamed, you'll be made to apologise. So it, we really are seeing the kind of return of blasphemy laws by the back door. What's amazing is that so few people on the supposedly radical left have said anything about this. This is a this is the capitalist class yeah. punishing a worker for daring to hold a particular point of view, an outrageous abuse of their property rights over a worker's speech rights. And yet we're not seeing any fuss kicked up at all by the left because, of course, much of the left agrees that it is wrong and punishable to criticise Islam. That's the bizarre situation we now face. 
And, and in general, much of the left feels that it's um, that losing your job is an appropriate punishment for for speech crime. And um, Tim, I don't know what your thoughts are. Well, again, like Brendan, it is absolutely shocking. You know, I kept you know, it's, it's almost. It's almost comedic if it didn't, if it didn't have any, if it didn't have such serious consequences uh, for um, a man in his fifties, a disabled mm. man in his fifties, uh, who has lost, you know, who has lost his job. Um, and at this moment in time, it's not particularly easy to get a job at that age. Uh, so you know, it's, it's it's a real sort of tragedy for the uh, individual involved. Um, but you know, it, it looks like sort of the, you know the Asda show trials or you know darkness <laughs> at noon in the retail sector, because that was what was so shocking. I think was, was the fact that he was made to issue a public uh, confession. Uh, effectively, he was he was made almost to say that he had committed a crime, even if he didn't realise that he had done so. Mm. Uh, it was it, it was entirely redolent of the the kind of stuff that would happen in uh, you know 1930s Soviet Union. Um, and Brendan's right. It is. It is shocking that as that you have um, the capitalist class, you have a, a large corporation uh, forcing a man to sort of abase and humiliate himself, uh, just so presumably uh, they'll probably give him references so he can perhaps hopefully get another job. Yeah, they've kind of they, 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 you know they coerced him into admitting something that he didn't do. Uh, it was his private Facebook feed. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't even something public. Uh, and then he's being forced to publicly sort of humiliate himself. So it's absolutely shocking. And do you see it, I mean, do you see it as part of the rise of, you know, this word Islamophobia keeps cropping up and we're supposed to look out for Islamophobia. You know, the MPs attempted to and recently failed to institute a legal definition of you know, Islamophobia. What you've written about that in the past, haven't you? What's odd was that Billy Connolly's obviously criticising religion as a whole, but yeah. the, the, the element which was problematic for uh, Asda middle management or whoever it was that decided initially to report the <laughs> report the <laughs> report the offending video clip was the fact that it was critical of Islam, and it just goes to show that it's being shrouded in in the same kind of uh, sacred aura as. Traditional blasphemy laws used to uh, shroud uh, Christianity. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, as the article on Spike pointed out, it is the resurrection of blasphemy laws, but this time just focusing on Islam. There's this thing that um, it's presumed to have a racist element if you criticise yeah. Islam. You know, the Isla- Islamophobia is presumed to be a form of racism. But as far as I can see, the, the only racism in this whole discussion is among those who think that the Muslim community is so fragile, mm. uh, y- uniquely among religious communities, that it has to be prote- protected from any kind of offence. I mean, there's a real ra- actual racism to that. Yeah. This notion that we need laws and expertise and, and capitalists to protect them from ever hearing an off-colour joke or a funny comment or a weird comment or an offensive comment. I think, um, you know, a, a lot of the justifications for the policing of speech about Islam is is based on this idea that we want the Muslim community to feel welcome, we want them to feel integrated, and therefore we can't go around slagging off their religion. That gets things completely the wrong way around. If mm. you really want a group of people or a community to feel integrated into the United Kingdom, then you should integrate them into what ought to be the core value of our society, which is freedom of thought and freedom of speech. And that's why I've always argued that having complete freedom to insult Islam as much as you please is absolutely essential, not only for freedom of speech, but also for the integration of our Muslim citizens, who will then re- realise that they are equal 
to all other groups in society in the sense that we can say anything the hell we want to about their belief system. That's true equality, I think, for the Muslim community. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, for more great Spike content or to make a donation, just visit spikes-online.com.